final I am statement. I am the vine, you are the branches. We pick up the text in verse 12. Again, Jesus speaking to his 11 disciples, giving them final truths that they're going to live by because he will soon depart from them. And so what he says is important. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. For all these things they will do to you for my name's sake because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would have no sin, but now they have seen and have also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is, written in their law. They hated me without a cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. This is God's word. Father, come now and help us. We, we come in our frailty. We come with stirred up, anxious hearts, many of us, worried about today, tomorrow, this week. We come wondering about the what-ifs. Father, I pray that you would slow us down and still us. Give us the ability to receive what you want to tell your people, this church, this body of believers, this building, Father, I pray that you would be building us up brick by brick, timber by timber. That, Lord, you would grow us into a community of believers that are impactful. We pray, Lord, that you would equip us today in this holy challenge. Father, we pray for your people. We pray, Lord, that we might be open and honest about you, about our own sin and our shame, and Lord, that we would delight in the truth that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins 
and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I pray that we might be a confessional community. Father, we lift before you our beloved Candy. We pray that you'd minister to her, touch her body, skill the doctors and the nurses. Father, we pray for the wider family. We pray for grace and mercy for them. Father, we, we want to see our sister back with us soon, and so we plead for that, Lord. We thank you for the good news about Vern, that he's home. We rejoice in that and in your great strength. Father, we pray that your grace would abound in these homes. Hear our cries, Lord, we ask. And we ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Conflict is normal in our world. It is a default setting. Since Genesis 3, with sin's entrance, with shalom shattered, with wholeness broken, a battle has raged on planet Earth. We might wish that it was otherwise, but the daily trickle of news proves this earthly reality. Christians have been birthed on a battlefield. Admitting that the conflict exists and being ready for the war of the ages is, of course, of vital importance. Have you noticed in John's Gospel that Jesus never pulls his punches. He never minces his words. He tells people the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Now, now keep in mind that these are his last lessons to this small band of brothers. This is just before his death, his inevitable burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, his ultimate departure. He's leaving them. But before he leaves them, he prepares his men with dynamic truths. And in preparing them, he prepares us. Maybe you know this. Probably some of the military folks here know this. But military recruiters are famous for telling young recruits what they want to hear so they will sign on the dotted line. But Jesus never lies to his recruits. He, his followers hear the whole truth. And so here we are in John 15. We're in the shadow of this great metaphor, this great picture story that calls us forward in connection. Last week we said two things. We said that this connection with Jesus Christ was vital to us. It was essential to us. There are no growing, thriving Christians who are not abiding in, staying with, connected to, living for the, the vine, Jesus Christ. There are no healthy, vital believers who aren't abiding. The idea is that they're, they're connected to him vitally. And we recognize that in this vital connection that there were blessings. The blessings of God hearing our prayers. The blessings of the Father being glorified. The blessing of joy and celebration, the wonderment that God's grace brings to our lives. It was a connection that was essential and that was blessed. This abiding, this dwelling under and with and in Christ prepares us for the future as it was preparing his men. 
And, we, and yet we have in this passage a kind of war and peace. I'm not thinking of Tolstoy's 1,200-page classic, but there is a kind of war and peace here. The chapter, or the passage that we began to read is kind of a loving, thoughtful, caring, kind passage. Love one another. And then it transitions in verse 18, if the world hates you, it hated me. And so you've got this tension that you feel in John 15, where love and care and and kindness are a part of that, but then there's this battle raging. There is this conflict going on. This morning, the passage begins with love, and then it moves towards war. How strange is that? Well, I've got three main ideas from the text that I want to share with you as you travel with me through the text. During our study of John's Gospel, we've been wanting to behold the glory of God. We want to see the glory of God. See the glory of God means that we understand our connection We understand his affection for us. We understand the vitality of that connection. But it also means that we join him in his work. We join him in his ministry. We join him in identifying fully with who he is, what he says, and what he does. Now, the first point that I'd raise over verses 11 to 17, as I've mentioned in summary, is that the followers of Christ are called to love. The followers of Christ, that's us, brothers and sisters, the followers of Christ are called to love. In verse 12, we have a re-emphasis of a theme that we've already heard. It's a familiar theme. It is the command of the king, love one another. When we're rightly connected to the vine, here's what happens, brothers and sisters. We love one another. We care more about their needs than our wants. They are more important to us than we are to ourselves. We're prepared to sacrifice for one another. Our affections are for one another. We've written over our refrigerators what Paul says in Philippians, others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Think not on your own things, but think on the things of others. For those of us who wonder about the boundaries of that love and that affection, It's given to us here in 13. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. That's pretty extreme. You're saying, yeah, but but how far, Scott, do I love? How, How much do I love? How much do I care? I mean, we're not getting carried away here. And then we read a text like this, and it says, oh, yes, we do. We're prepared to lay down our lives for our friends. It's an amazing thought. You think about those even in our country who serve us, who are prepared to lay down their lives for their friends and countrymen. We recognize in verse 13 that friend love reaches an apex, a zenith, a mountaintop, when we're prepared to lay down our lives for our friends. If we could love, if we could love one another Those of us gathered in this place on this day, if we could love one another this way, we would be blessedly contagious to a hurting, dying world. Think about that. If I could love you and you could love me, and around and around we go, people would know that we have been with Jesus. 
because we're so much more interested in other people than we are in ourselves. Oh, how hard this is. How impossible this is if we are not connected to the vine. Verses 14 and 15 on this theme of love, the followers of Christ are called to love, is really interesting because he says, you're not slaves, you're not servants, you're my friends. You've got a new status. You don't share your hopes and dreams and aspirations with a hired help. You share it with your friends and your acquaintances. And Jesus says to his men, you're my friends. We're in partnership here. I don't know where you stand on some some relational sort of grids, but we often have a sense in which I'm not equal to, I'm not with, I'm, I'm not in partnership with, I'm below, I'm way down here, or something like that. And so to hear Jesus speak to his men this way, you're my partners, my friends. Fascinating. I have a pastor friend that I've had since the 70s. He had a profound impact on my young teenage years. We have... Uh, we have met up in various ministerial settings over the years. And he keeps saying, Scott, don't call me Pastor Jim. Just call me Jim. And I can't. Because he's Pastor Jim to me. He was in my youth and he is still now. And I said, brother, everybody needs a pastor. He said, yes, but we're, we're pastors together. Eh, no, you're Pastor Jim. You feel that tension, don't you, with certain people who you have great respect for and affection for? We, we want to enjoy that. And so to hear the king of glory say, you're my friends. I can't help but wonder, Peter, shoe leather Peter saying, friend? I don't think so. Reality is that God is calling us into a kind of intimacy that frankly is stunning. And, and then to realize from verse 16, when he speaks to this small band and he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Hey guys, I put you on this team. I put you together. I selected you. What a fascinating concept. The idea that no one else but Jesus would have put this group of guys together. Now, let me just shine a spotlight on a couple of individuals from this merry band. You've got Simon the Zealot, and you've got Matthew the Tax Collector. Zealots want to see the authority of Rome crushed and stamped out in the land of Israel. They are political activists. Matthew, as a tax collector, has participated in ripping people off in and around Israel. And so when you think about the constitution of this group that Jesus put together, you, and, then, and then to hear, oh, and I want you guys to love each other. That's an amazing perspective. Who but God could do this? Who but God would do this? Now how do we personalize this? How's this, how's this land on us? Well, very simply... I'm looking out today and seeing a swath of people who would not and could not be together were it not for the work of God's great grace. I mean, we got 
all kinds of folks, and you guys, none of you are exactly alike. And then to hear God command us to love each other, care for one another, who but God could call us towards that? And who but God could melt our hearts, humble us before the cross of Jesus Christ, and bring us into unity and community? Now, is it perfect? No. Last week told me that again. But this call of God upon our lives is unchanging. The help that he makes available to us is ultimately impressive. And so it's amazing to think about the fact that God is calling his people together from different tribes and tongues and nations and backgrounds and socioeconomic groups and different ways of viewing the world and different ways of, of, of viewing all kinds of things. He's chosen us to bear fruit. All right, you guys are going to work together, love each other. Show to the watching world what it means to love people who aren't exactly like you. And go out and do that. Jesus picked an odd and eclectic band of brothers, almost humorous. And he still, he is still doing that today. He has the audacity to command you and I to love each other. The friends of Jesus love one another just as we have been loved. Brothers and sisters, you know what that means? That means that division, backbiting, worshiping your preferences, party spirit, tribalism are all lethal to body life. When you care more about what you want than what others need, you are not obeying this great call. So even in peace, this call towards love, there is a challenge laid out for us. It transitions in verse 17. After the command to love one another, you notice there is a sharp pivot, and I put this heading over verses 18 to 25. The followers of Christ must expect conflict. Shocker. I'm not telling anybody anything that they did not know. The followers of Jesus Christ must expect conflict. In verse 18, Christ begins to prepare his men for opposition. Christ has spoken often in John's gospel about his unity with the Father. Here he is speaking about his unity with his disciples. The verse tells us that we cannot be the intimate friend of Jesus and the intimate friend with a godless world system. In verse 19, true Christians are not of this world. They are unlike the crowds around them. People in love with the world will make friends with the world as they draw away from Jesus Christ. Here's what's happened. Here's what happens. You choose culture over Jesus. You choose comfort over Jesus. You choose idols over Jesus your world becomes flat. You don't want heaven. Your soul shrivels to the size, maybe, of your phone screen, and you become a prisoner to pixelated stimulation. You trade a transcendent God for likes. Only the present matters. 
The past and the future can take a hike. And then we hear in verse 20, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. This should not shock us. This should not surprise us. There is a battle that is raging because of who we represent. We will be hated because the world is at war with Jesus Christ. Unbelievers typically are tolerant until they hear that Jesus is the only way. It is his exclusivity that makes him a pariah in a world that is trying to say that every truth, every thought, every impulse, every feeling is valid if you have it. You see how that brings you at odds with the watching world? Brothers and sisters, we must stop soft-selling Jesus. He is not a comforting commodity. He will be the Lord over all. And that's the point of struggle for even believers in getting their minds around this raging warfare. In verse 22, Jesus said that he, he shined the light on man's sin, and so it is sin that makes people hate him. Sinners hate the light. They recoil from the light. They don't want to know and they don't want to hear that there is one who rules and reigns over them. And in 23 and 24, we realize they are not indifferent or passive towards God the Son and God the Father. They actually hate both. They hate God the Father. They hate God the Son. It is impossible to treat the Father and the Son differently. Like, I like Jesus, but I don't like the Father. He says you can't have it that way. It doesn't work like that. And then in 25, he, he quotes from Old Testament passages. Psalm 35, Psalm 69, Psalm 109, verses 3 to 5. And he says that in David, this was prefigured. This idea that, that David loves and he cares for his flock and he cares for his nation, but people hate him irrationally. And that becomes a prefiguring of how people think about Jesus. Think how kind and gracious and loving and caring Jesus was. And yet he is loathed, he is abused, he is maligned, he is maimed, he is martyred in his ministry. And then to realize that, brothers and sisters, if if we fully identify with Jesus, then we're going to face this kind of tension, trouble, and struggle. We sang of it this morning. The, the trauma of, of living a life for Christ. Because there is a trauma. Is there comfort? Is there help? Is there strength? Is there grace? Is there mercy? Absolutely. But is there trouble? And to that we must say, yes, there is. Because man is born to trouble as the sparks fly upward. Because Jesus said to his men and his women and his followers, his boys and girls, his teenagers, In this world, you will have trouble. When you worship the creation and not the creator, your rage will know no bounds. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you this. You know it, but let me tell it to you. Brothers and sisters, the lack of popularity for true Christians is not some new development in our country. It's not some new global phenomenon. It's always been that way. 
There have been times when we've been on the ascendancy, some of us getting proud, some of us getting arrogant in that. But ultimately, Christianity is about serving, loving, caring, dying to self. There is an irrational loathing of sinners for this righteous king, just as there was for King David. When Hollywood applauds chaos and calls it beautiful, it is simply acting out an animosity that it has towards God. When our state leaders cheer the murder of the unborn as a right of the mighty, it is actually tipping its hand. If you stand up and speak up for Jesus, you will be despised. That will bring you into trouble. To speak of marriage between a man and a woman, to speak of homosexuality as a sin, as gender, something that is settled, not fluid, it will make you an anathema in an age that embraces confusion. When self is worshipped, there is no room for God. See, what's happening is that we're always trying to make God in our image. Years ago, it was Jonathan Edwards that preached that great sermon in Enfield, Connecticut, I think, where he said, you know, it's sinners in the hands of an angry God. He took that from the book of Hebrews. And through the decades, through the centuries, the remorphing of that is now it is God in the hands of angry sinners. We try to make him in our image. The feelings that we have, the impressions that we have, the thoughts that we have, the culture that we have, well, that's who God is. And yet to read the book, to believe the book, to have confidence that God has spoken in this love letter to us is to bring us into conflict. Well, thirdly and finally this, the followers of Christ are not left helpless. The followers of Christ are not left helpless. We began with this call, this challenge, this command to love, and we move beyond that to this idea that, that, that Jesus proves our sin, displays our sin, displays our brokenness, and we're, we're, we were revolted by that until we came to a saving knowledge of him, but the world is still revolted by that, still recoiling at that. And then coming finally in verses 26 and 27 to this good news that Jesus shares with his men and us, when he says, but when the helper comes, you'll notice helper is capitalized. When the helper comes, whom I shall send to you from the Spirit, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will testify of me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I'm going to send you a helper. If you're in a conflict, don't you want to know who's in your corner? I do. I was involved in a fight one time. Before I knew I was in a fight, I was in trouble. I had been being mean to someone in seventh grade. His name was Darren, Darren Dodman. If you're listening, I'm sorry. I'd been mean to him saying stupid things, mean things. And he pulled the hood of my parka over my head from behind and started pummeling my head. I didn't even know I was in a fight until I was in a fight. I wasn't ready. It was deeply embarrassing. Reality is that for the people of God, there must be an awareness that we are in the midst of a conflict, that there is a battle raging for the hearts and souls and minds of people. 
that there's something far more important than our bodies, that our souls are more important. So there is a battle raging. Do you know about that? To be forewarned is to be forearmed, to be prepared for this. So who's in our corner? Well, God says, God, the Spirit is in your corner. He's inside of you, convincing you, convicting you, counseling you, giving you insight, encouraging your heart in this holy struggle, this holy war. The followers of Christ are not left helpless. It is wrong to expect that a, a kinder, more gentle, more humble approach to the world will ultimately carry the day because none of us are as kind and nice as Jesus. The true gospel brings you into battle against the forces of evil and selfishness. And it demands a decision. Let me whisper this into your ear, brothers and sisters. What shall it profit a man, woman, boy, or girl if you gain the whole world and lose your soul? That's gospel truth. That's a call towards something bigger and grander than just the physicality of our day. In this conflict, Jesus tells his men, you will have divine help. Think about it. We're involved in a team approach. If you were ever on a baseball team and someone intentionally threw at one of your teammates, it behooves you as a member of the team to stand up, walk out of the dugout, show your support. You're hoping it doesn't go any further than that, but you're ready. You're a teammate, right? We recognize the truth of those that are present with us and to understand that, that God is present with us. There's this great description of friendship from Scotland. There's this description where it says, Dundas is no scholar. Dundas is no orator. But he will go out with you in any kind of weather. I'm thinking, now there's a friend that I can sink my teeth into. There's a friend that I understand. The true gospel, with its heaviness and its bad news, that we must speak the truth in love, that we must contend for the faith, also calls us towards this understanding of companionship. The one who is with us, who never leaves and never forsakes us. Well, three crucial orders, and we're done this morning, three crucial orders if the king is speaking, if we can hear the king speak, first of all this, the church must have more, not less contact with the world. Jesus isn't telling his men, guys, I want you to hide out. I want you to make a fortress in the wilderness and just stay there. I'm going to come back and get you someday. He calls them towards engagement. He calls them forth to be his representatives. He uses the term witness. You're going to be fruitful in your witness, which means that they're going to take the stand one day and explain what they know to be true on the basis of what they have seen, and they're declaring the goodness of God in rescuing mankind from sin. But the church was supposed to have more contact and not less contact with the world. We are, in fact, resident aliens. He doesn't take us out of the world. He leaves us in the world. He cleans us in the world. And he calls us to effect change. If, if you're only surrounded by Christians, ask the Lord for opportunities to minister to those who are not yet Christians. Ask the Lord for the courage and the, 
the strength and the grace and the mercy to love those broken by sin, to those still condemned before a holy God. Think about it. You can't testify to the truth of Christ if you have no contact with the world. I've never seen a farmer drive his tractors into the barn and start harvesting in the barn. You go out into the fields and you harvest there. Secondly, this. We must plead for an alertness to opportunities and a boldness to speak when they are given to us. How many of us, maybe in this past week, sensed from the Helper, God the Holy Spirit, inside of us, an opportunity to speak a fit word in season, to testify of the goodness or the the greatness of God. We pulled back, got afraid, wondered what they'll think of us. I have to see them next week too, so I don't want to make it weird. We ought to pray for a boldness to speak. I was thinking of this passage in Ephesians 6 where Paul is asking the Ephesians, he says, pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. And I think Paul needs boldness? Every time the guy shows up, it's a riot or a revival, but nothing ever stays the same. And he's saying, would you pray for me that I would be bold and faithful? Brothers and sisters, would you pray that I would be bold and faithful in my ministry? I will pray for you that you will be bold and faithful, not obnoxious, not mean-spirited, not small-minded, but understanding the glory of the gospel and what it does in people's lives and hearts, the changes that occur in the hearts of those that are rescued at the foot of the cross. Third, crucial marching orders for us today from the text. We should largely expect conflict with the world, but some fruit. See how we did that? Get ready for conflict. It's coming. It's here. It's always been here. But some fruit. This Pastor Jeff, we were down at a pastor's gathering in Glenmont, Jeff had this brilliant, insightful statement that he made around the table. It's kind of like, wow, man, that's great. Jeff said, he said, we were talking about evangelism and discipleship in our local churches and local communities. He said, if if you think about it, there's a lot of wasted seed. And he used the parable of the seed that is sown and it falls on rocky soil, it falls on weedy soil, it falls on the pathway and so on. It's really not about sort of holding back the seed and just looking for the perfect place to throw it. You just throw the seed liberally out there. God does something with the seed. But there's an element in which in evangelism, in good newsing, you just cast it out. You don't know where it's going to land, how it will mature, if it will bear fruit, but your responsibility is seed sowing. It's the scattering of the good news of Jesus Christ. There's something desperately wrong with us as humans. We're broken and undone. What what all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't do in putting us back together, Jesus Christ has done. 
by taking our place on the cross of Calvary. And activated, that message in your life humbles you and changes you and makes you a new creature in Jesus Christ. And it's fantastic to think. And I know some of your testimonies, but the reality is that for some of you, you you came from a clear state of darkness and death into the light and into life. That's a marvel to think about. We should expect conflict, but we should also expect some fruit. Looking over this passage in summary, you realize that the commandment is to love. The reality is conflict. But the hope is that he will be with us. This chapter begins with the vineyard, ends at the throne room, reminding us of great truths so essential to our spiritual well-being. In baseball, I don't know why baseball's on my mind. We're not heading down, I don't think, for spring training just yet. But in baseball, the, the goal of a baseball player is to get home. It's not to get to first base. It's not to get to second base or third base. The goal of a baseball player is to get all the way around the bases and get home. And interestingly, when you get home and when you cross the plate, and maybe it's been a close call, there is the referee, there is the umpire there, and he does one of these. Safe. That's what we as Christians should be focused on. Not simply getting to first or getting to second, or having a good hit, or making a good showing, but getting finally, fully, safely home. And as Jesus calls out to his disciples, as he prepares them for conflict, as he challenges them in this holy pilgrimage that he's placed them on, he tells them how to get safely home. Every follower must keep in mind our goal. It's home. In 2 Peter, Paul says, I fought a good fight, finished the race, finished the course, kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for him a crown of righteousness. That's the goal for us, brothers and sisters. It's not simply to exist. It's not simply to pretend. It's not simply to gather together weekly. It is to get safely, finally, fully home. Jesus Christ is the only way home. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would do its work in our hearts. We thank you, Lord, that you teach us, train us, love us, equip us. We thank you, Lord, that you have given to us a standard by which we live life. Your commands are not given to us because you want to kill joy, but that you want to bring joy. Your commands are given to us as tender calls to call us forth into blessing and bounty. So, Father, I pray that we would hear today your upward call. I pray that there's one here that's not trusting in you as Savior, that God the Spirit, the Helper, would work in that heart and draw that one to yourself. But Father, I pray that you would equip the saints to do the work of the ministry today. And we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, who has loved us first and best. Amen.